Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Misag Parsa, who is a professor of sociology. His most recent book, which we'll be discussing, is called Democracy in Iran, Why It Failed and How It Might Succeed. Misag Parsa, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for coming on. What was the Iranian Revolution of 1979 about, uh, and what did it quickly turn into? Well, the revolution was uh, in part caused by rising inequalities in the 1970s. Uh, this is a period um, after 1973. Iran's oil revenues quadrupled at the end of 1973. And a lot of good things happened during that period. The monarchy promoted economic development, and lots of growth took place during that period in economic terms. But also the downside of it was the fact that inequalities increased and the working class and the middle class were not uh, completely satisfied with um, the development. So the people in the upper classes and those with good connections to the state were able to improve their economic conditions, and as a result, inequalities rose. And uh, in the year 1977, when President Jimmy Carter was elected to office, he talked about human rights, and he had actually, during his campaign, he had mentioned Iran as a friendly country, as an ally that did not observe human rights and repressed opposition and so forth. So in the summer of um, 1977, about June 1977, Three of the leaders of the Banned National Front, a group that was associated with Dr. Mossadegh, uh, who was prime minister in 1953, that was overthrown by the CIA-engineered coup d'etat. His supporters in June of 1977 uh, wrote, published an open letter addressed to the king, the Shah, we call him, and that he needed to observe the Constitution and grant political rights political parties and opposition and so forth. That started a chain of action by other opposition groups, lawyers, human rights activists, and so forth, uh, to demand political rights. And in the fall of 1977, students who were mostly leftists at Tehran University and other major universities started engaging in collective action and demanding political freedom. An interesting thing happened same time in the fall of 1977, there were a, um, about 16 nights of poetry um, during which in October and November of that year, uh, poets and writers got together and read their poets and poems and, and their writings and so forth. It promoted a lot of student mobilization and collective action. And finally, later on, in <clears throat> beginning of January 1978, the clerical students engaged in some collective action for political freedom and civil liberties and so forth. And those developments brought in, first, the bazaar merchants, these are merchants, shopkeepers, not, we call them generally bazaaris, right. in Tehran and some major cities. And their activities resulted in um, some mosques becoming involved in opposition against the Shah. And so as the Shah pretended that he was sort of, he did liberalize a little bit, but 
the pretension was more than the actual performance of the regime. So there were some political prisoners who were released from prison. Some were put on trial for on in civilian courts rather than the military courts. And so there was some political liberalization, but there was a great deal of pretension that, oh, yeah, there's democracy and so forth. And that brought in the merchants, and then eventually by the end of uh, summer of 1978, uh, and beginning of fall of 1978, like September, early September, the working classes and the middle class started engaging in uh, economic strikes first, and then gradually they became political. And finally, to make the long story short, um, issues of inequalities combined with issues of political freedom and liberties and democracy became intertwined, and eventually, by the end of 19. 19- 78, um, major political groups became involved in political activities. So you have the merchants, you have the students, you have uh, the middle class, you have the working class, everybody demanding economic, uh, greater economic uh, improvements in their living conditions, housing and higher wages, higher salaries, benefits, medical conditions, health care, so forth. And then you had also the political so you so you haven't uh, you haven't mentioned anything about a demand for a theocracy or religious restrictions that doesn't seem to have been a a, a popular demand very excellent point thank you for bringing it up so by the end of 1978 Ayatollah Khomeini emerges as the leader of the revolution the movement and so Ayatollah Khomeini makes uh, very important declarations during the period. As the movement begins, Khomeini talks about there are a few themes that show up in all his writing and political statements that he addresses the opposition and the regime. So the most important uh, concern that Khomeini has is political freedom, and he promises um, greater equality, improving people's economic conditions, bringing freedom, and he talks about genuine democracy that would be even better than Western democracy. And so he makes a great deal of promises on political freedom and greater equality for the population. And a third theme that shows up in his um, speeches, in his statements and proclamations, is the fact that Islam has been undermined. But he does not mention anything about theocracy throughout this period. And when he comes back to Iran, the main theme is political freedom, democratic rights, and Islam is against political repression. Islam is for political freedom, civil liberties, women will be have equality, will be free, and even the communists would be free to um, say what they want to say as long as they don't engage in conspiracy. So there's a great deal of things that are happening at this time, all the promises, great promises that are given. But another another interesting thing happens about four days after his arrival, coming back to Tehran, he speaks about one new item that you did not see in his previous, while he was in, in Iraq or he was in Paris. Uh, he never said anything about this topic. Once only he mentioned the word, but he didn't say very much about it. Only once 
when he was in Paris, he mentions the word. But once he's back, about a few days after his return, he talks about Mustazifin. Mustazifin is the group that means the downtrodden, the oppressed. And he started speaking that Islam has come to serve the interests of the oppressed and the debased or the poor. And this was a new theme that showed up. Still, in the early period, there is no talk about theocracy. Gradually, Khomeini was able to garner a great deal of support from the oppressed, from the barefoot, from the working class, and parts of the middle class. And so, um, once he became much more popular than he was by talking about the most as a thing, and the oppressed, and the, and the abased, the group that is really downtrodden, he, as he became more powerful, he were able to establish a revolutionary guard. And gradually, uh, by the summer of uh, 1979, he was able to start eliminating the opposition. So in the August of 1979, in one day, he banned 22 publications, newspapers and opposition publications. And gradually things intensified, and the Revolutionary Guard came, arrested a lot of people, put them to jail. And by the time you come to the period of hostage crisis in November 1979, there's a great deal of opposition going on in Kurdistan, in the Turkmen region, and the leftists are restless. The universities are opposing a lot of things that he talks about he wants to impose. Gradually, it becomes clear that Khomeini's interest is really in introducing a theocracy. So Khomeini played on grievances that both the nationalists and leftists had suffered during the 1950s. 1953, August 1953, coup d'etat. And so a lot of them were opposing the Islamic regime and what was going on. So Khomeini started talking about anti-Americanism. Students took the uh, American embassy hostage, and that brought the opposition one more, once, one more time together. And by the end of 1979, he was able to impose a uh, constitution that had theocratic elements that promoted himself uh, or the clergy uh, to the position of what they call now, is called the supreme leader. And so to summarize the whole, the whole period, so the revolution begins as collective action by various social groups for political freedom and greater economic equality. We're speaking with Misag Parsa, whose wonderful book is Democracy uh, in Iran. Uh, Misag, can I can I ask you to, to to jump ahead in the story a teeny bit because uh, we 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 have limited minutes and it's and it's such an account of corruption and abuse and of popular resistance to theocracy over the years. Can you talk a little bit about how things have developed since 1980? So, very good question. So, revolution that begins with political freedom and economic equity, it ends up that Khomeini and his supporters ended up taking all the assets of the previous dominant class, the regime and their cronies, the Shah and his cronies, and expropriated all of those, and a bunch of religious uh, minorities like the Jews and the Baha'is, some of their assets were also taken, and some of them were executed. And so... And once Khomeini had the political power and the, all the economic resources, and talking about the Mustafa 
Mustazafin and all of those. He imposes his theocracy and tells the people that, well, your problem is really uh, cultural issues. You know, so you need to observe Islamic principles. So women were relegated to second-class And um, you have political groups that were almost all of them were banned. The political repression was not just the communists or the socialists and the um, people who didn't want to be follow his Islamic principle, but also touched members of his own polity. So let's talk a little bit about the political uh, repression of, of the Islamists and then talk about issues of corruption and economic difficulties and stuff like that. So uh, if we take the revolutionary council that emerges with his own uh, endorsement after, the, after he returns to Iran, there were 21 members that survived of this revolutionary council that ran the country in the first year after the revolution. So the Revolutionary Council of 21 people, by the time you get to, let's say, 2009, when the Green Movement took place, within that 30-year period, the revolution comes February 1979, and by 2009, out of the 21 people who were members of the Revolutionary Council, 19 of them uh, were either in the opposition uh, one was executed. Few had, had died by then, and of the nineteen, of the twenty-one people, nineteen were really not supporting the regime, either completely against the regime or had all kinds of criticism about the regime. Only two members of the twenty-one fully supported the Islamic regime, and one was the supreme leader Ayatollah Khamenei himself, and another one was the uh, leader of the Guardian Council. Uh, so, basically, Ayatollah Mahatavikani, basically everybody had abandoned the, their full support for the regime. When you come to the economy, inequalities expanded after the revolution. So the clergy ended up gaining control of the vast majority of the resources. Ayatollah Khamenei, who is the supreme leader himself, he controls about 50% of Iran's GDP. The Revolutionary Guard controls another about 20, approximately about 20% of Iran's resources. And so the private sector is basically marginalized. The government itself controls the oil and gas. And so the vast majority of the resources in the country are controlled by the either the Supreme Leader, the Revolutionary Guard, or the government. So private sector basically is marginalized and has very little to contribute to the economy. So the economy is a state-centered. Poverty, which used to be approximately about, during the monarchy, about 33, 34% of the population lived below the poverty line. Now more than half, about 55% of the population lives below the poverty line. And corruption, which Ayatollah Khomeini promised to fight against. Ayatollah Khamenei, his successor, also promised to, to fight against corruption, basically it's rampant. The Islamic regime is one of the most corrupt regimes on earth, according to Transparency International, an organization that investigates corruption throughout the world. And so anything you have to do that has to do with the government, you have to pay bribes. And the country's banks are mostly controlled by the government. They are also 
uh, recently have been some of them pri- privatized. About half of them are bankrupt by now, and people who put their money in the banks have lost, and they can't have any money back. Why did the Green Movement in 2009 not overthrow the government? And and what would it take, given the unpopularity and all the corruption, what would it take for the Iranian people to change their government? Okay, another excellent question. So the Green Movement, there were a couple of problems with the Green Movement. First, uh, the Green Movement, uh, its leadership uh, was composed of people who, over there, they call them reformists. They did not really want to challenged the Islamic regime um, completely. They didn't want to change fundamentally the, the existing structure they had. So Mr. Musavi had been prime minister for eight years during the war, and he told the people as they were started protesting, he said, well, our system is sacred, and, and you don't want to overthrow and, uh, this regime. You want to maintain the regime as, as people. So a week after... Um, the elections, Ayatollah Khamenei, the supreme leader, uh, got on television, and he stated that the elections were um, honest, valid, and there were no uh, cheating, there was no irregularity, it was a little bit, um, that's just very insignificant and superficial, minor things happen in every election in every country. But in broad outline, it was fine, and Mr. Ahmadinejad is the candidate whose views are closer to his. So as soon as he made this declaration, about one week after the election, uh, the opposition was radicalized. So although the leaders of the movement, Musavi and Karubi, uh, remained supporting the Islamic regime, the opposition became very radical and called for an Iranian republic as opposed to an Islamic republic, and they started insulting calling for dictatorship, Ahmadinejad is a dictator, death to dictatorship, death to Islamic Republic, and so it quickly became radicalized. And for several weeks, the opposition was mounting uh, very strong, uh, very uh, popularly uh, <clears throat> engaged collective action they had in the streets of Tehran and all major cities. The problem was that they didn't succeed, and the success Although the leadership became a little bit more critical of the regime and uh, and made increasingly critical statements, telling people to watch out for a dictatorship. A religious dictatorship, they claim, is the worst kind of dictatorship if, if it emerges. And they pretended that it hasn't emerged yet, but they were became becoming increasingly critical. So the opposition in the street became very radical. The leadership moved a little bit towards the left but not completely. And in the end, what happened was that two classes did not join the opposition. And these two classes were the merchants that had been very active during the revolution. They were quickly repressed as they were trying to organize and mobilize themselves. A couple of them were murdered of leadership in the merchant class. Some of them were arrested, and they were blocked from mobilizing and joining. The other one was the working class, that did not take up the strike that they had taken up during the 1978-79 revolution. And finally, the third element that prevented a revolution in the country was that during the Green Movement, medium-sized and small-sized cities that had participated in the revolution in 1979 did not join in. 
And as a result of this, the Islamic regime was able to bring their paramilitary forces, they're called the Basij, from medium-sized and small-sized cities to Tehran and all, all the large cities where there were a lot of protests, and they were able to repress the opposition. Yeah. And had they had joined in, along with the merchants and workers, they would have been able to overthrow the Islamic Republic, but they couldn't. There were some of the leaders of the Revolutionary Guard that were also against repressing the population. About 10 or 11 of them were executed at the time, and so they succeeded in repressing by using their besiege and paramilitary forces. Had they had brought in, had, had the merchants and the workers been engaged in collective action, joined the opposition, had medium-sized, small-sized cities had joined in, they would have had to bring the armed forces to repress the opposition. Right. And had they had brought the army, the equation would have changed. And so, because much of the army is conscript, and the conscripts would not have shot the people. So things would have been very different. Do now, you, do you to think... To make a long story short, that in December 2017 and January 2018, something interesting happened. Uh, Small cities and medium-sized cities in more than 100 cities started opposition against the regime and suddenly flared up about two weeks of protests throughout the country, but mostly in medium-sized and small cities that had not joined in during the Green Movement. Now they were calling for the overthrow of the Islamic Republic. Do you think that the sanctions imposed by the United States on Iran and the threats of, of U.S. war against Iran help or hurt the cause of, of democratization? Very, very complex, complicated issue and excellent question. So it goes in both directions. In a way, it, uh, um, it undermines the regime but in a way also it undermines the opposition. The way it works is that the economic situation has worsened. And so the working class, which did not engage in collective action in the strikes during the Green Movement, now it is after 2015, actually, after the end of the, the first round of sanctions, the internationally imposed sanctions, they have started a lot of strikes throughout the country, mostly in major cities. So the working class, which was not engaged, has become involved in opposition. And some of the slogans they shout are uh, very radical and called for uh, sometimes serious changes in the country. The other group that was not involved in previously are the farmers. The farmers were not really very engaged in the Iranian revolution until the last few weeks of the revolution. So have been generally conservative. So I have this group that uh, is... is farmers in Isfahan, the most conservative farmers in the country. In recent months, they have been engaged in a lot of collective action, fighting basically over uh, the rights to water. And one of the slogans that they have been shouting is that, that has been picked up by other groups throughout the country, is that um, our enemy is right here. They lie saying that America is the enemy. The shocking slogan that the regime has promoted constantly, death to America, death to Israel. They say, our enemy is right here, meaning the clergy. In one event, uh, in, they went to a mosque 
And as soon as the clergy started giving the sermon, they turned by the hundreds of farmers, maybe thousands, turned their back to the to the clergy and said, uh, our back to the enemy, we face the nation. That's how radical the most conservative groups have become in the country. And the other thing is that students have been involved in, in collective action. Women are also in the forefront of opposition against the regime. So the sanctions worsening the economic conditions uh, and bringing a lot of these people into the, these uh, conflicts against the regime. But also one of the most important things that has happened in the 40 years of the Islamic rule is that um, 14 people a few months ago issued a statement to the uh, Supreme Leader and asked him to resign. And another 14 also made the same statement. Third 14, the fourth 14 were all women, and they said, yeah, you have worsened our condition. We want you to resign. And all of them demanded, but a few hundred people in all made this statement. Each one had 14 members in it. And they said, the Supreme Leader should resign, and we want to have an, a referendum that is internationally observed and to determine the fate of the Islamic Republic. As yeah. For a few weeks, they didn't, the regime didn't do anything, didn't respond. Suddenly they realized that the numbers are expanding. They arrested them, and they're most, most of them are in jail right now. One was released, but the vast majority of those people were arrested and put to jail. So the sanctions undermined the economic conditions, but also produced a lot of opposition, including these several 14 groups. In Islamic Republic, if you are opposing, you demand the Supreme Leader to resign and have a referendum. That would be called Muharreb. Muharreb means uh, hostility against God, or warring against, the, against God and the Islamic regime to represent God. And that, by law, can be put to, put to death. Misak Parsa, we have just two minutes left. I, I want to ask a, a question about U.S. politics, because in U.S. politics, when you point out faults with the government of Iran, it's usually in order to generate reasons for threatening war on Iran, nonsensically, but, but that's, that's what it is. Do you, do you foresee your own work, or has your own work been, been put to, to those ends? Well, the United States policy is, uh, right now is very polarized, conflictual, and um, I do not, as an American citizen, I follow the American politics and all that. But to the extent that it relates to Iran, a war against Iran would be disaster for, for the democracy movement in Iran, because, as I said, once the opposition started demanding changes, the Revolutionary Guard rises up and arrests all these people who made the demands, the 14 groups of 14. And so a war would be very disastrous. Now, it is possible that Donald Trump starts a war if, if conditions worsen for him for re-election or, or the issue of impeachment and so forth, but that would be very terrible because right now Iranian people are really um, have good feelings towards the United States. The United States is no longer seen by Iranians as the enemy. When 9-11 took place. A few thousand Iranians picked up candles in the evening and went to the American embassy. And by now, thousands of people have shouted that the enemy is here. It's not America, and it's a lie. 
to say America is the enemy. But the war would change everything because it would bring the military forces in the forefront, would result in the arrest and, and repression of the dissidents and opposition, and Iran's democracy movement would, be, would experience a clear setback. Very, very well said. We've been speaking with Misag Parsa. The book is Democracy in Iran, Why It Failed and How It Might Succeed. Highly recommend it. Misag, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you very much for having me. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.